Howdy, welcome to the Norfolk State Writing Center. My name is Will Huberto, and I'm one of your resident consultants, and I'm here to talk with you today about commas. Commas have a variety of rules, some of which are somewhat flexible, which makes them hard to advise upon. So some rules are steadfast and hard. If you're connecting two complete sentences, a noun and its verb, with a fanboys, you need a But there are also rules that are changing as the language develops, and there are rules that allow some authorial decision-making. So in today's episode of The Writer's Cipher, we're going to talk about how to best navigate punctuational decision-making. Whether you're a prescriptive grammatarian, one who believes grammar is prescribed by an ultimate source, usually strunk in White's elements of style, or a descriptive grammatarian, one who believes in observing grammar as a malleable entity which changes with social patterns and usage, we've all got to acknowledge Strunk and White's own assertion that, and I quote, it is frequently hard to decide whether a single word such as however or a brief phrase is or is not parenthetic. If the interruption to the flow of the sentence is but slight, the writer may safely omit the commas. What's this mean? It means you get to decide if you want to omit the commas or not. Someone might disagree with you. This opens up a can of worms, but at the end of this podcast, I have a suggestion and a solution for you. As a descriptive grammatarian myself, I love this breach in hard-cut rulemaking because it kind of supports my point that grammar is malleable, even if just in some circumstances. There's more than just this rule, though. Enter the Oxford comma. The Oxford comma refers to the last comma in a list. It precedes the and, but, or, or that comes in the sequence. So if I have a cow, comma, chicken, comma, and a birthday cake, I've got to separate all these obviously related items with a comma. The comma that precedes the and before birthday cake is called the Oxford comma. Recently, though, upon the authority of the prescriptive grammatarians, the Oxford comma has been skinned from public use. So my cow, comma, chicken, and birthday cake sequence only contains one comma in the phrase, and that comes immediately after cow. So why not just abide? And I suppose you could, but some grammatarians have pointed to circumstances where omitting the Oxford comma can cause ambiguity. For instance, if I went to see the Sorcerer's Stone back in the day with my homies, comma, Fetty Wap and Big Sean, wherein I've excluded the Oxford comma, you might wonder if Fetty Wap and Big Sean referred to the two homies I went with, or if Fetty Wap and Big Sean are not yet my homies, but they joined some other homies and me to see the film. Let's say, in fact, Amasi, Ramal, Fetty Wap, Big Sean, and I had gone to the movies. 
With the Oxford comma in the example of my friend list, there's not quite enough information to know how many people went to see the film unless I mention Amasi and Ramal by name. Without it, we might assume that three people went to see the movies. Fediwap, Big Sean, and me. So, in reality, I did go to the movies with all four of my homies, and having bonded over the Potter movie, I might be able to say rather ambiguously that I saw all the sequels as well with my homies, comma, Fetty Wap and Big Sean. This gets trickier because if I use the strunken white rule about omitting commas for brief parenthetic phrases, I might be best off omitting any comma at all. So if this new example includes the Oxford comma, Fetty Wap, Big Sean, some other homies and I went to the, uh, uh, the movies. Uh, however, if what really happened was that the only homies of mine who liked Harry Potter were Fetty Wap, Big Sean, and me, and that only we three went to see the sequels, then I can omit the commas to make that clear that Fetty Wap and Big Sean are an explanation as to who my friends are rather than items within a list that contains the ambiguous number of homies. In that situation, there would be no comma at all. Okay, this is confusing. Look, the point here is, when you set your appointment at the Norfolk State Writing Center, and you request we review your comma usage, you might want to set up an in-person or an online consultation so we can chat in real time about ambiguity. If you do an e-tutoring appointment, in which I mark up your paper, and you develop ambiguity without thoughtful comma usage, you'll have a lot to read and I'll have a lot to write. I promised a solution to this dilemma, but I'm a descriptive grammatarian, so if you aren't, then I don't think you'll like this much. You ought to just be sure to be thoughtful about your comma usage. Remember that commas are mostly instructions on how to read out loud or in your head. If you want the reader to pause, use a comma. But make sure you're consistent with how you use your comma. If you're going to omit the Oxford comma, do it regularly in all your papers. And if there's ambiguity, write the sentence another way. As I always say, there are many ways to the same place, and that includes the writing world. For you prescriptive grammatarians, well, you might want to reconsider your worldview, because I flat up don't know what to tell you. You've got some explaining to do about this comma thing because the elements of style gives you a little leeway in some comma usage editorial decision making. But let's table that descriptive prescriptive debate for now though. Uh, let's get back to our writing. I've got a letter to write my Aunt Kathy because I just dug up a bunch of her fiction and poetry that I never responded to. It's 2009, so I'm 11 years late. And without further ado, I bid you farewell, but we'll be excited to meet you again on the next Writer's Cipher. Peace in the East, y'all. 